Okay, welcome to Technocratic Tyranny Blues. Let me just adjust my volume a little bit. There we go. That should be a little bit better. Uh, Free Associations, the 13th of September, 2022. And I wanted to play a piece of audio that I found at the Internet Archive, which covers Alfred McKinder and the World Island Heartland theory, I think is what it's called officially. So let me just get that back to the beginning again. I'm going to let this play. I don't know how long it is, but I'll just let it play because it's good. Trump has served as a demolition job. He's accelerating the decline every day. you got to remember, back in the 50s, we could both have guns and butter. We could have this massive military apparatus around the globe, and we had sufficient funds for domestic prosperity. We had half the world's economy. It's diminished, and now we have to make choices. We can't do it all like we once did. So what we've been doing is maintaining the foreign apparatus and beggaring the domestic infrastructure, including intellectual, and the decline is showing. It's you know, those chickens are slowly coming home to roost. And what's happening is, is cascading mistakes. And this can either be slow erosion or it can have dramatic eruptions. And that's what the future will tell. That's Alfred McCoy. And this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Alfred McCoy on 2030, the end of U.S. empire. It's most likely historians will mark the war on terror, declared by George W. Bush in 2001, as when the United States went into precipitous decline. The rapid military expansion into multiple countries was classic imperial overreach. The era of the U.S. as a sole superpower is drawing to a close. China is challenging U.S. global hegemony and it is doing so primarily on the economic front. It lets Washington spend trillions on wars and the pricey weapons to fight them. China, in the meantime, is constructing long-term economic partnerships and alliances with countries all over the world. It is also building up its military, but will not risk a war with the U.S. China had a bad couple of centuries, but it's back, big time. The trends all point to 2030, when China passes the United States. Our guest today is Alfred McCoy. He's professor of history at the University of Wisconsin. He's the author of the classic, The Politics of Heroin, CIA Complicity in the Global Drug Trade. He's also the author of Torture and Impunity and In the Shadows of the American Century. He spoke at Elliott Bay Bookstore in Seattle. And now, Alfred McCoy. Thinking and writing about the United States as an empire has always been an ideological minefield for historians like myself. During the 40 years of the Cold War, the Soviet bloc used the Marxist-inflected term imperialist to denigrate the United States. So in this country, the United States might be a world leader or even a great power, but we were never an empire. Our enemy, the Soviet Union, was the one with an empire. America was an exception, and its historians thus subscribed to a doctrine known as American exceptionalism. 
But in the aftermath of the 2001 terror attacks and the dismal 2003 invasion of Iraq, the term empire lost its subversive taint, and policy specialists right across the political spectrum began to embrace the concept of empire and ask whether or not the United States global power might be in decline. So at the peak moment when its dominion was being challenged, history's most powerful empire was arguably its least studied. Suddenly understanding the distinctive way that Washington had been exercising its world power was no longer some kind of academic parlor game, but a matter of pressing public concern. For if this nation's unprecedented wealth and prosperity were based upon its global power, then understanding the U.S. exercise of that power was essential, if not to perpetuate the power, but at least to manage its decline to allow for the most peaceable transition possible. So at this time of a major global transition, we need to go back to basics and try to understand the nature of global power, how it is won, how it is exercised, and most importantly for this dangerous historical moment, how it might be lost. Now, to understand our changing world and America's place in it, we must go back to basics. We must go back to the foundational text for the study of geopolitics. We must go all the way back to a bitter, cold London evening in January 1904, when a man named Sir Halford Mackinder, who was then director of the London School of Economics, entranced an audience at the Royal Geographical Society on Seville Row in London, with a paper boldly titled, The Geographical Pivot of History. Mackinder argued that the future of global power lay not, as most British then imagined, in controlling the planet's sea lanes, but instead inside a vast landmass that he dubbed Euro-Asia. Now, in Mackinder's view, when he was a geographer, Africa, Asia, and Europe were not three separate continents, but when you looked at them properly, they were a unitary landform, a single landmass that he dubbed the World Island. And its broad, deep heartland, stretching for 4,000 miles from the Persian Gulf to the East Siberian Sea, was so vast that it could only be controlled from its maritime marginal, he called it, in the surrounding seas. Quote, the discovery of the Cape Road to the Indies in the 16th century, McKendrick explained, endowed Christendom with the widest possible mobility of power wrapping her influence around the Euro-Asiatic land power, which had hitherto threatened her very existence. In the Victorian age, Mackinder's age, the opening of the Suez Canal and the advent of steam shipping had, he said, quote, increased the mobility of the sea power relative to the land power, allowing the rise of Europe's vast empires in Asia and Africa. Now, as his audience that night in 1904 knew well, by then, the British Navy of 300 capital ships ruled the seas from a global network of 30 fortified bastions stretching from Scapa Flow through Gibraltar all the way to the Straits of Malacca. But as the Trans-Siberian Railroad's single track was now crawling for 5,000 miles all the way from Moscow to Vladivostok, the future railways could, McKinder warned, quote, work the greater wonder in the step, undercutting the cost of sea transport and shifting the, the epicenter, the locus of geopolitical power away from the oceans where Britannia ruled the waves to the inland domain of the world island. 
Now, a century after Sir Alfred Mackinder gave that speech, which, by the way, was not just a, a statement of the changing politics on the Eurasian landmass, that speech was actually the foundation of, of the study of geopolitics. Everybody studies geopolitics, Zygmunt Brzezinski, everybody else since then, comes back to the single speech. That article was the invention of a discipline. <clears throat> a century after that historic speech in 1904, another British historian, Oxford historian John Darwin, argued in a sweeping history of empires in Eurasia over the span of a thousand years that the United States achieved what he called its colossal imperium on an unprecedented scale after World War II by becoming the first power in history to control what he called the strategic axial points at both ends of Eurasia and doing so through its military bases and mutual security pacts. Now, while Washington defend the western end of Eurasia, that axial end in the west, through NATO, its position in the east was secured by four mutual defense pacts along the Pacific littoral from Japan, South Korea, the Philippines, all the way down to Australia. In the post-war architecture of U.S. geopolitical power, these two axial points at the end of Eurasia were joined by an arc of steel around the continent comprising mutual defense treaties, strategic bombers, and naval armadas, specifically the 6th Fleet in the Mediterranean, the 5th Fleet in the Persian Gulf, and the 7th Fleet in the Pacific. By the Cold War's end in 1990, the U.S. encirclement of Eurasia required 700 overseas bases, 1,700 jet fighters, 1,000 ballistic missiles, and 600 ships, including 15 nuclear carrier battle groups, all linked by the world's only global system of telecommunication satellites. Most recently, in about the last 10 years, the U.S. has added another layer to those circles of steel by building a string of 60 drone bases stretching around the Eurasian landmass from Sicily to Guam. In the decade after World War II as well, Washington also built a potent four-tier apparatus, military, diplomatic, economic, and clandestine, for a global dominion of unprecedented wealth and power. First and fundamental was the unmatched power of the U.S. military. And complementing all that steel was the salve of a worldwide diplomacy, manifest in multilateral alliances, economic aid, and the cultural suasion of soft power, things like Hollywood movies and the Rotary, the Peace Corps, and all that. This global security also promoted trade pacts that allowed America's burgeoning multinational corporations to operate around the world profitably, and adding a distinct dimension to U.S. global power that really distinguishes it from all empires past was a clandestine fourth tier that entailed global surveillance by the NSA, the National Security Administration, and covert operations on five continents by the CIA, manipulating elections and mobilizing client armies for coups to assure friendly leaders in presidential palaces worldwide. After, after presiding over a world that has enjoyed 70 years of relative peace and prosperity, Washington, like any aging empire, is facing a slow erosion of power relative to other rising powers in almost every realm. Over the past half century, for example, the U.S. share of the global economy has fallen from 40% in 1960 to just 22% in 1916. And if we use the more realistic measure, what's called purchasing power index, it's only about 15% of the world economy today. As its dominance of the world economy fades, the clandestine instruments that Washington once used to project its power so effectively 
are now weakening. The NSA's worldwide surveillance of select foreign leaders and their millions of citizens was once a cost-effective instrument for the exercise of global power. But now Edward Snowden's recent revelations about NSA snooping has raised that political cost. Right from the start of the Cold War, the CIA engaged in constant political intrigue, frequent electoral manipulation, and occasional coups to assure that the leaders of the free world were friendly towards America. During the past decade, however, Washington's ability to shape the politics of other nations has faded, something we've seen in Venezuela, Nicaragua, Iran, and Georgia. For decades during the Cold War, Washington manipulated major elections worldwide with some success. But now Russia has used its cyber warfare to interfere in the 2016 U.S. elections, a clear sign of Washington's waning global power. To put it very simply, very directly, a global hegemon manipulates other nations' elections. A fading superpower is manipulated. But above all, it is China's recent rise that has accelerated this process of U.S. decline. In 2012, at the seeming peak of U.S. global power, the National Intelligence Council, Washington's supreme analytic body, issued an unexpected warning about China's impending challenge. Let me quote from this important report, which was generally overlooked by the media. The report says, quote, By 2030, no country will be a hegemonic power, largely reversing the historic rise of the West since 1750. Asia will have surpassed North America and Europe combined in terms of global power, based on gross domestic product, population size, military spending, and technological investment. China alone will probably have the largest economy, surpassing that of the United States a few years before 2030. In April 2015, the Department of Agriculture reported the U.S. economy would grow by nearly 50% over the next 15 years, till 2030. But China's would expand by 300%, equaling or surpassing America's by 2030. Now, as shown in the race for worldwide patents, American leadership in technological innovation is clearly on the wane. Back in 2008, not quite 10 years ago, the United States still held the number two spot behind Japan in worldwide patent applications with 232,000. China was at 195,000 and closing fast thanks to a blistering 400% increase in China's applications since the year 2000. By 2014, things were very, very different. China actually took the lead in this critical category. China scored nearly half the world's patent applications, filing an extraordinary 801,000 patent applications compared to just 285,000 for Americans. With supercomputing now critical for everything from code breaking to consumer products, in 2010, China's defense ministry beat the Pentagon by launching the world's fastest supercomputer, the Tianhe-1. For the next seven years, Beijing produced the world's fastest machine until 2016 it finally won in a way that really mattered, with microchips made in China itself. And by then, by 2016, China not only had the fastest supercomputers, but it also had the most in the world, with 167 compared to 165 for the United States, and only 29 for Japan, the number three. Finally, the American education system 
a critical source of future scientists and engineers and innovators, has been falling behind its competitors. In 2012, the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, the rich countries club, if you will, tested 510,000 15-year-old students worldwide, finding those in Shanghai came first in math and science, while Americans placed 20th in science and 27 in math. Okay, we know that that was back then, but now we've had Bush's no child left behind. We've had Obama's race to the top. Surely things must have gotten better. I wish I could say so. I'm an educator. That's what I do. Back things have gotten worse. Three years later, in 2015, America's standing slid further to 25th in science. And this is not a typo. I looked it up. I double-checked it. 39th in math. 39th in math. I mean, what? I mean, one can only imagine. Okay, so you might say, all right, let's, let's forget that, okay? Why should any of us care about a bunch of 15-year-old kids with braces, backpacks, and, okay, we know, attitude, right? Well, in 2030, those 15-year-old test-takers test will be the mid-career scientists and engineers determining whose computers survive a cyber attack, whose satellites avail a missile strike, and whose economy is going to have the next big best thing. After three years of abjuring any aspirations to world power, Beijing's actions over the past three years have revealed a subtle two-part strategy for challenging and defeating U.S. global hegemony. First, they're building a transcontinental engineering project of sufficient scale to realize Mackinder's original 1904 vision in that London lecture of harnessing the Eurasian heartland as an engine to drive the ascent of a new world power. And second, China's constructing naval bases for severing those circles of steel that Washington has long arrayed around the Eurasian continent's perimeter. Yet even today, a hundred years after Mackinder's lecture back in 1904, this Eurasian heartland is so vast, so empty, that its development represents a daunting challenge too difficult to grasp by a mere glance at the map. Now, let's face one fundamental fact, okay? You remember your middle school geography, right? Continents are sort of unitary, self-contained things, except there's one anomaly in that. Europe and Asia are actually a single landmass, okay? So, so we have one continent with two names divided, and what was the division? The distance in that empty center, that heartland that Mackinder talked about. For nearly a thousand years from the 12th century to the 21st century, the endless distances alone challenge any traveler who tried to cross them rendering Eurasia's actual geographical unity, in human terms, meaningless. Starting in around 2007, China launched the world's largest burst of infrastructure investment since Washington began building the interstate highway system back in the 1950s. In less than 10 years, China invested a trillion dollars in infrastructure to economically integrate this Eurasian landmass. Between 2007 and 2014, China built 9,000 miles of new high-speed rail, more than the rest of the world combined, and began integrating that domestic network into a transcontinental grid, starting with the so-called Eurasian Land Bridge. You can ship by train from China all the way to Germany. In this same dynamic decade, China began constructing a comprehensive network of transcontinental gas and oil pipelines to import fuels from Siberia and Central Asia for its population centers in northern, central, and southern China. 
The result will soon be an integrated inland energy infrastructure, including Russia's own vast network of pipelines extending across the whole of the Eurasian landmass from the Atlantic for 6,000 miles all the way to the South China and East China Seas. Now, you remember the World Island, three continents, Europe, Asia, and Africa. China has got another trillion dollars to bring that one in as well. Recalling that Africa is the third component in Mackinder's imagined World Island back in 1904, by 2015, Beijing had doubled its annual trade there to $220 billion, three times America's, and China plans to invest a, a trillion dollars by 2025 that will make it the absolutely dominant economic power on the African continent, binding it into that world island. And indeed, to bind that world island's finances together, in 2016, Beijing launched the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank that attracted 57 member nations, including a number of America's closest allies, who together contributed $100 billion in capital, making this new institution half the size of the World Bank. In a complementary move, China's building Navy bases in the Arabian and South China Seas. In April 2015, President Xi Jinping committed $46 billion to build the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor that will stretch for 2,000 miles from China's west to a joint port facility at Gwadar, Pakistan. There, China had already spent $200 billion to transform this sleepy fishing village into a modern strategic port just 370 miles from the mouth of the Persian Gulf. In 2016, Beijing began building a major naval base at Djibouti on the Horn of Africa, creating the basis for permanent Chinese naval deployments in the energy-rich Arabian Sea. Starting in two, April 2014, Beijing escalated its claim to exclusive control over the South China Sea, expanding its Longpo naval base on Hainan Island in southern China to build the region's first nuclear submarine facility since the United States pulled out of Subic Bay in 1991 and dredging seven artificial atolls to construct military airfields in the Spratly Islands right in the middle of the South China Sea. By 2030, China will have so many aircraft carriers in the area that the South China Sea will become what the Pentagon has called a Chinese lake. With its naval bases spanning 5,000 miles across the Arabian and South China Seas, while its submarines range as far as San Diego, China is forging a future capacity to strategically cut through those arcs of steel that America has long laid down around the Eurasian landmass. So, what has Washington done about all this? Have we been asleep at the switch? Has anybody been paying attention? Am I making this all up? Upon taking office in 2009, the Obama administration, and President Obama is one of the very few American leaders that has a keen sense of geopolitics, developed a sophisticated two-part strategy to contain China's rise. First and fundamentally, the Obama White House negotiated two ambitious trade pacts, the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, that would effectively drain the commercial lifeblood out of China's imagined world island, okay, across the Pacific towards America, across the Atlantic towards America. Sixty percent of world trade in these two pacts would be redirected from Eurasia towards America. Second, Obama decided that the Middle East was a strategic dead end for America. Now that we were energy independent, we had no real strategic interest in the Middle East. 
And he began shifting every possible spare force out of the Middle East to rebuild America's axial position along the Pacific littoral from Japan through the Philippines to Australia. Now, after President Obama announced what he called his pivot to Asia in a 2011 address to the Australian Parliament, a full battalion of U.S. Marines was deployed in March 2014 at Darwin on the Timor Sea, well positioned to access the South China Sea through Indonesia's sea lanes. In 2014, the Philippines, angry with China over Beijing's seizure of Scarborough Shoal, a atoll well within Philippines uh, uh, maritime waters, the Philippines allowed the stationing of U.S. forces at five military bases close to the South China Sea. And through existing bases in Japan and Okinawa, construction of a joint naval facility on Jeju Island in South Korea, and access to naval bases in Subic, Singapore, and Darwin, Washington under Obama, quickly rebuilt its chain of military enclaves all along the Pacific littoral. And under Obama, to operate these installations, the Pentagon planned to, to quote, face 60% of our naval assets in the Pacific by 2020, along with similar preponderance of Air Force fighters and bombers. Under Obama, as well, the U.S. Navy regularly and repeatedly challenged China's claim to the South China Sea with what were called freedom of navigation patrols, massive carrier armadas sailing through the South China Sea to make it clear to China that these were international waters. Now, in his first year in office, the Trump White House has done a remarkable job of demolishing the pillars of U.S. global power. During his first overseas trip in May, President Trump chastised stone-faced NATO leaders for their failure to pay their, quote, fair share into the military part of the alliance. And then, very significantly, he refused to affirm before the NATO members the core principle of collective defense, i.e., one NATO member is attacked, all the other NATO members will come to their defense. He pointedly refused to affirm it. He's since made gestures in that division, in direction, but, but at the time... That was a very serious blow. That prompted Angela Merkel to declare Europe must mind its own destiny. Along the strategic Pacific littoral, the other axial end of the Eurasian landmass, Trump canceled the Trans-Pacific Partnership Trade Pact right upon taking office. Uh, this prompted Japan, particularly Prime Minister Abe, to warn that China, through its regional cooperation 16-nation trade pact, would soon capture all the commerce. He was the first leader to call Trump. The point of that phone call was to plead with Trump to pass the Trans-Pacific Partnership. He flew to Trump Tower, sat down with Donald and Ivanka. Again, the topic of that 90-minute conversation was Abe's plea. Trump blew it off and canceled the trade pact. Under Trump, America's once close relations with its four key allies along the Pacific littoral have weakened visibly. During his courtesy phone call upon taking office, Trump gratuitously insulted Australia's Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, increasing the country's mounting inclination to shift Australia's primary strategic alliance towards China. In recent public opinion polls, 45% of all Australians said that they preferred China over America as a primary ally. This is an unimaginable reach uh, that Trump's policy is only widening. During his campaign in his first months in office, uh, Trump insulted South Korea to the point where its new president, 
won office in large part on a platform of, quote, say no to America. And when that president, Moon Jae-in, visited Washington this June, determined to heal the breach between the two countries, he was blindsided by the harshness of Trump's critique of the South Korea-U.S. free trade pact. And just days after Trump dismissed President Moon's suggestion that the two countries negotiate with North Korea, Pyongyang successfully test-fired a ballistic missile capable of reaching Alaska or possibly Hawaii with a nuclear warhead, an act that made those same negotiations Washington's only viable option, apart from a devastating, perhaps, nuclear war. Now, in the Philippines, because we're moving down country by country, Japan, South Korea, right down the Pacific littoral, in the Philippines... The inauguration of President Rodrigo Duterte in June of last year brought a sudden shift in the country's foreign policy, ending his country's opposition to Beijing's bases in the South China Sea and allying openly with China. Now, despite good personal relations between these two leaders, who are very much in that right-wing populist vein that we've seen emerging right around the planet in recent years, The leaked transcript of President Trump's phone call to President Duterte last April about the North Korean nuclear threat indicates how far, how far China. Now, I could read the transcript off verbatim, and it would, I don't think, mean that much. The words are pretty dull on the page. So let's spice it up. If we change Trump's words to accentuate their kind of middle school swagger, and then we keep President Duterte's text absolutely verbatim, as it was in the transcript, then I think the subtext, the real meaning of the text, would read like this. Okay, so Trump says, Hey, Rodrigo, baby, I got the cyber power to keep them North Korean trash rockets crashing. But President Duterte replies, quote, The ace card has to be with China. So Trump ramps it up, insisting, No, man, I got... Two killer nuclear subs right there, right now. Trump actually said that. But Duterte replies, I'm Xi Jinping. And then Donnie Boy plays his trump card saying, no way, man, because I got 20 times the nuclear blast of that Pyongyang punk so I can smoke Mr. Rocket Man's ugly butt right to kingdom come. Duterte to that replies, quote, he will make a call tomorrow to China. So bye-bye, Manila. A hundred years of a close relationship, basically gone. In the war of nerves with North Korea over its missile tests, Trump's strategy of triangulation with China, wheeling on Beijing to lean on Pyongyang to stop the rockets, nobody in Washington seems to notice that we've already, in a certain sense, lost the real diplomatic game. Washington has suspended all freedom of navigation patrols in the South China Sea for the last three months, effectively conceding the strategic waterway, which is the the passage for $5 trillion of global trade, one of the most critical arteries for global trade anywhere on the planet, conceding this waterway effectively to China. Stretch to the breaking point by the standoff with China. As we all know, four ships of the U.S. 7th Fleet have recently crashed, two with heavy casualties killing 17 American seamen, while China's Navy pushing calmly, relentlessly, aggressively against Washington's seawall of containment has had zero accidents. In other words, America's geopolitical command of the axial ends of Eurasia, the central pillars of its world power for the past 70 years, seems to be crumbling 
with surprising speed. You're listening to Alfred McCoy on 2030, The End of U.S. Empire. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can order copies of this program by calling 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Now, what do we make of all this? If we look into the future a bit, what can we see? And here we go beyond documented fact into applying that fact into constructing scenarios, possibilities, things that might happen. First and fundamentally, even the mightiest of empires is surprisingly fragile, vulnerable to sudden collapse from unforeseen causes. Who could have guessed at the end of World War II that the British Empire, that had covered half the globe for over 200 years, would be gone in less than 20 years? Or who could have guessed that the ferocious Soviet bloc would collapse in just two years? So I projected four scenarios for the end of U.S. global power by 2030 in the expectation that actual events would combine elements of each in ways that nobody could imagine. Now, at the most benign level, one of my scenarios, the tides of geopolitical power flow towards Beijing, the U.S. military slowly retreats from the whole of Eurasia, and Washington becomes just one of several major powers. More malign would be an American version of the British bumbler, Prime Minister Sir Anthony Eden, either Trump or some inept successor, blundering into an ill-conceived military strike akin to Britain's 1956 invasion of the Suez Canal that exposes the limits of American power, just as British power was exposed back in 1956. Or we could see a continuing decline in the U.S. share of the global economy. It was 40% in 1960. It's down to 22% or maybe even 15% today, and it's dropping steadily. This could reduce Washington's ability to project its military power globally. By 2040, a little beyond my 2030 scenario, the crushing costs of climate change, which, by the way, I've read the reports, nobody in Washington has actually added up what this is going to cost. This, I think, will redirect that 5% of U.S. gross domestic product, domestic product used for imperial defense to domestic recovery, forcing the U.S. military to retreat from its global bases. But more dramatically, there could be what I call World War III with China, that America, according to recent Pentagon assessments, just might not win. No methodology and no scenario, no matter how fun it might be, can possibly encompass the many moving parts of a world empire, much less the ever-changing interactions among several of these massive behemoths. But with that caveat that it's very difficult to know and, and even more difficult to project, I feel we are clearly at the start of a major transition away from unchecked, untrammeled U.S. hegemony. After a quarter century as the world's sole superpower, Washington now faces an adversary, which as we saw in Beijing in the party conference, Xi Jinping is determined to mount a sustained challenge to U.S. dominion. He is determined militarily and economically to establish China as the world's great power. Now, there are naysayers who insist, and there's lots of contemporary scholars that are writing in, in erudite journals arguing that this is never going to happen. 
They insist that China's population is restive, its demographics are declining, they're aging, or its economy has weak fundamentals. But in my view, they're missing the main point. Once Asia, Africa, and Latin America merge into that world island through China's trillion or maybe two trillion dollar infrastructure project with Beijing at its center, the tides of trade and geopolitical power will, as if by natural law, flow away from Washington and towards Beijing. And even if Beijing falters, thanks to a decline in economic growth or a surge in popular discontent or other factors that we can't even imagine right now, <clears throat> there are still a dozen rising powers worldwide working to build a multipolar world beyond the grasp of any single global hegemon. If the world experiences a slow, peaceful transition away from U.S. hegemony, then the subsequent world order just might, just might, maintain liberal international institutions like the nations, the World Health Organization, the International Criminal Court, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, that in a sense represent the best of American values, the best possible American legacy from its 70 or 80 years of global dominion. If, by contrast, the world experiences the rise of Chinese or Russian hegemony, then we will likely witness a harsher world order based on real politique and crude commercial advantage with scant attention to human rights, women's rights, gay rights, and the rule of law. And whether this will be a peaceable transition akin to the amicable imperial handover from Britain to America in the 1950s, or a violent eruption like the Napoleonic Wars, World War I or World War II, we can't say. But nonetheless, this ongoing shift in the balance of power certainly bears watching. From everything I've learned, I think we can count on one thing. This transition will be transformative, even traumatically so, impacting upon the fabric of life for almost every American. Thank you. Questions? Yes. What are the stakes in the clash with over North Korea? What's China's hand? What's the U.S. hand? What's going on? Uh, if we use, a, I think, a common metaphor, because we're looking at basically a point in geopolitics when it comes down to three leaders, okay, uh, in Beijing, Pyongyang, and Washington. And so what we're looking at one of those moments in which global diplomacy, global diplomacy, has all that game theory. So let's use the the game of poker, okay? Xi Jinping is playing a masterful game. You know, he's not showing his cards. You know, he's playing a very long, strong hand. And and frankly, you know, uh, I don't think he's terribly concerned that Kim Jong-un is actually going to use a nuclear weapon. I don't think he wants the regime to fall. That's very clear. China does not want the flood of several million Koreans into northeastern China, which would really strain their economy, resources beyond imagining. I think China's situation, just as it is, and I think China is playing upon this situation brilliantly. Um, in my own view, it's already over. China's won, we've lost. Xi Jinping, a cool poker player, playing a long hand against an impulsive guy who's throwing the chips on the table and pounding and you know, calling and raising and trying to bluff and bluster, 
is just sitting there, not showing his hand, beating Trump at every move. And the China's game, I think, is not concerned with Northeast Asia. What China wants is the East China Sea and the South China Sea. And China's getting both of them. So in China's, it's in China's interest to let this crisis drag on for months or years. And, in the, and, and, and then for, for Washington to think it's pressuring Beijing to pressure Pyongyang to stop the missile test. And, and as long as that game is going on, China's winning because the U.S. Navy is backed right out of the South China Sea. And every month that we don't run a freedom of information control effectively transfers de facto sovereignty over that critical body of water to China. And so China's winning this game, hands down. There's no real risk for China. I'm sure they've done an accurate assessment. They don't really feel there's a serious risk of thermonuclear war. They probably have pretty good intelligence about how the missile program is going, the weaknesses of it, the strengths of it. The other thing that's, I think, fraught with risk for the United States. Okay, so what are the U.S. options? Okay, well, uh, I mean, Steve Bannon, probably not my favorite geopolitical strategist, but nonetheless, Steve Bannon had a blinding flash of insight just before he left. He called up uh, some liberal reporter in Washington, D.C., and said, you know, basically all this stuff with uh, Pyongyang is nonsense because, you know, we can't do anything to them because they're just going to shell Seoul where 10 million people can get killed. So they've got us. So it's just not, he said, it's just, we can't, we can't do anything. All right. Uh, so, so, you know, one, we are very limited in our capacity for action. So what can we do? We can't, I think, strike a North Korea. Realistically, the military recoil from that because they've got massive amounts of artillery that we can't even begin to knock out quickly enough to stop them from shelling Seoul. It's an, I don't know if you've been to Seoul, I've been there. It's a densely packed city with elaborate infrastructure, high rise. I mean, shelling would, it would be disastrous. The death would be phenomenal. The damage to South Korea's economy, and South Korea's got an economy bigger than Russia's. It's the 12th, 11th or 12th biggest economy in the world, and it's very important technologically. So there'd be all kinds of ramifications for that damage. So I don't think they're going to do that. So what's the Trump administration going to do? Okay. So he keeps testing missiles. So he, I think the logical thing to do without getting into that disastrous circumstance is to try and launch an anti-missile to knock down one of his missiles. And that's got real risk because the Pentagon always rigs the tests. So we don't know if they actually work. So if we fire an anti-missile and it misses, that's it. You know, Japan then will say, we're going to build our own nuclear capacity. The, the, the U.S. anti-missile shield is not a real shield. We need to either build any missiles or maybe even go full nuclear. Uh, South Korea will pull away. That's it. <clears throat> you can overplay your military hand. And that's what I think the likely result would be in this circumstance. As we move on with each generation beyond that founding generation that built this imperium and maintained it skillfully, they seem to forget what the dynamics of this apparatus are. And what we're seeing with Donald Trump is, you know, he's sitting there with, you know, these generals. I don't think any of them understand the, the, the geopolitics of what they're doing. Obama is that he did. He was incredibly skillful in managing the resources of a declining power in order to maximize its influence, slow that decline, and maintain its global position.
Trump has served as a demolition job, and he's just uh, he's accelerating the decline every day. So one thing that emerges through all of this, okay, is one, there are complex long-term systemic variables, social capital, a share of the global economy, technological edge. But then, very importantly in this game of empires, leadership matters. Leaders can slow decline, accelerate it, maximize opportunities, uh, minimize losses, or quite the opposite. And so at each three phases, we're seeing those variables playing out. You've got to remember, we could both have guns and butter. We could have this massive military apparatus around the globe, and we had sufficient funds for domestic prosperity. We had half the world's economy, right? Well, it's diminished, and now we have to make choices. We can't do it all like we once did. So what we've been doing is maintaining the foreign apparatus and beggaring the domestic infrastructure, including intellectual, and the decline is showing. It's, you know, those chickens are slowly coming home to roost. And what's happening is, is cascading mistakes. And this can either be slow erosion or it can have dramatic eruptions. And that's what the future will tell. Other questions? China's a 21st century power running an 18th century energy system based on dirty coal. Okay? And, and those pipelines are bringing not just oil, but mainly get natural gas. So China is making a massive switch in its plants. And it's a, it's a struggle, just like our struggle, because... The coal industry has got local influence, creates lots of jobs in China, much more than the United States. So he's got to weigh that, but, but he's, he's presiding over a forced transition in China's in energy infrastructure from coal to gas. Furthermore, he's decided that China is going to become the world leader in alternative energy sources, in solar panels and wind turbines, and they're purloining technology from around the globe, developing massive alternative energies, so he's really moving China very rapidly through a two-phase development, shifting from coal to natural gas, so that, that those choking, crippling fogs that blacken the sky at noon in Beijing will disappear, as they will with natural gas. But then the emissions will drop dramatically when they, they switch to renewables, renewables. So China has actually got a, you know, a, a serious commitment to the Paris Climate Accord. They haven't dropped out. They're going to comply, and they're going to profit accordingly. So, that, you know, it's, it's a very skillful strategy when you're trying to shift your energy infrastructure where a command economy has advantages, when you have to make a rapid shift, okay, right across the board, and you've got all these competing forces, the, the antecedent in industries that are pushing the, the carbon lobby, is pushing to maintain coal and oil. And having a command economy gives China a certain advantage that a free market economy doesn't have where we have a freer interplay of forces and the lobbyists can win time and again. Sure. Okay, so the three-part question. First of all, is the U.S. empire short-lived? And second of all, what are the dynamics that's going to allow some kind of some kind of transition to be more effective? What's the nature of that transition going to be? Okay, so has it really been short-lived? Okay, well, if let's say we last to 2030, uh, that will have been 85 years. <clears throat> the Soviet Union was 1917 to 1990, which is uh, 63 years. Uh, Germany, which had one of the few empires that actually controlled the European continent, that lasted six years. Japan, which by my counting 
had the world's biggest empire in terms of population under its control because they conquered much of China. It only lasted, at its peak, two and a half years. Okay, So 85 years in the imperial game, that's not bad. And you got to remember the British Empire at its peak, 1815 Waterloo to 1914, you know, to the start of World War I, 99 years. You know, and, and they had 99 years as, as premier global power, you know, contending powers, but nonetheless. So 85 years, that's pretty close to Great Britain. That's not bad. You know, in the, in the arena of empires, that's good. Yes? It's a very provocative and very useful kind of question. Okay, this, this tension in the United States between the principles of democracy that we're espousing, which define us as a world leader, that makes us this exceptional nation, this exceptional power, freed from the curse of colonialism and imperialism. And, and then the reality of the fact that we're presiding over a global order and we're intervening in nations around the globe covertly and overthrowing their sovereign states, in a sense betraying the sovereign order that we've constructed. And I think that empires are, are odd confections that infuse together all kinds of seemingly and actually contradictory principles and practice in their, in their sum. And they're, they're held together in a way that nation states aren't because they're kind of diverse and they, they, they're, they're doing multiple things that nation states don't really do. World powers are maintaining geopolitical positions. They're maximizing their influence. They're making tactical decisions about what, what counts. Uh, it, it's a complex calculus. And so the British Empire, uh, as the London Times put it in 1942, they said the British Empire is inherently a self-liquidating concern. In other words, that the British saw themselves as promoting progress and development for the peoples around the globe under their care and protection. And they felt that inevitably, if that job is working, then those people will be ready to cast off the British, as they indeed did very quickly. Uh, so that the dominion and the manipulation conflicted with the ultimate logic of the British Empire. And when, if you look at the British legacy, in, in a sense, the British struggled with these contradictions and the, the disasters that we know about, the Kenya pacification, the Aden operation, all that, Northern Ireland, okay? They, they, you know, they, they made mistakes, okay? But when it was all done, when they'd mediate those contradictions and liquid their way out, they left behind a legacy that gave them, first of all, the nations they left behind were, you know, moderately stable and had some developmental trajectory. Um, and moreover, they preserved um, a cultural influence, soft power, finance, they, you know, Global Britain, I mean, that's the tragedy of it today. They're, they're living off that memory, and they think that somehow they can reproduce this by leaving the European Union, but that's, that's another story. <laughs> you know, when you, when you talk about empire, you've got to, to understand in its own terms. You've got to engage in this kind of realpolitik systemic analysis to try and understand how it's operating and how it might be changing. And it shifts your locus. But, when we shift our arena to the interplay of empires, you know, as Prime Minister Abe said, China's got one that's worse. There's no environmental protection at all. There's no recognition of, of workers' rights. There's no inspection. You know, there's no verification. It's cash and carry, a very cynical, and China's going to grab the trade and steer it that way towards China.
That's the imperial conundrum. It's that contradiction between democracy at home and empire abroad. Mark Twain said it so, so cleverly, you know, uh, he did this futuristic thing of which I was inspired by. He did a, you know, sort of America 500 years hence in which, he, you know, he argued that, you know, how did he put it? The American Republic, by having trampled upon the liberties of others abroad, learned to do so to itself at home. In other words, that, that what you do abroad, okay, in the development of empire and Twain hated that. The, he was part of the anti-imperialist movement, all that. So, I mean, I, you know, yeah, uh, that, that's, it's that, it's that imperial conundrum. It's that contradiction between democracy at home and empire abroad. As I always like to say, empire is basically a, it's a 5% game. It's about 5 to 10% of your GNP. It's which way are you going to swing? It's that discretionary money. Once you do everything you need to do, that little bit you got left over, it's not much in a budget, but it's enough to do something creative. And Britain, at that point, the working class mobilized and said, we're going to take that, and empire is over, and they did. And we're in a similar turning point now that we're not wealthy, where we're faced with a really severe choice between maintaining this global apparatus and beggaring ourselves at home, or the American people laying claim to those resources, and we're seeing that playing out now. I think all the complex politics we're seeing is really sort of late imperial politics, the politics of imperial decline. Yeah, the China specialists that, that are looking for that kind of blowback, they're saying, first of all, that China was is incredibly arrested. The society is very repressive. You know, massive surveillance, uh, denial of human rights, uh, endless abuses of petty party officials that take people's land without compensation, demolish their homes. Uh, you know, the, the, the poor, the Chinese working class, you know, is, is not doing really well in this whole thing. So there's this belief that there could be this ferment, this reftiness. And because it's a command society in which dissent is suppressed, we don't know the full extent of it. But China specialists think that it could be quite extensive. And so, again, they face the same imperial contradiction between domestic constituencies making demand on that imperial 5 or 10%. Now, China's got an advantage. It's an ascendant power. It's the terms of trade have advantage. If they, it's manifest in their, they're down to three trillion. But a while they had four trillion dollars in foreign exchange, you know, in the bank, ready to spend. They didn't have to go into their budget to do that. And so it's one trillion for the infrastructure, another trillion for Africa. And they're, they're down to three. And, you know, so they've, they've got surplus because the, they manipulated the terms of trade to advantage themselves and acquire this asset as a new ascendant power. And in doing that, of course, they held down the wages. And that, that allowed that accumulation, also allowed that entry into the global exchange. And so the question is, you know, how long will they run? Well, if China gets 50 years, that's not bad in a global system. But I think it's their ascent now. And one can't say what their contribution, but I think the, the parameters of, between domestic pressures and the international aspirations, defense, trade, infrastructure, aid, all that. That's, I think that's, that's evident in China's case as well. Okay. Thank you. All right. That's it. Uh, that well. was Alfred McCoy on 2030, the end of U.S. empire. 
He spoke at the Elliott Bay Bookstore in Seattle. Alfred McCoy is professor of history at the University of Wisconsin. He's the author of a number of books, including In the Shadows of the American Century. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and part of the nonprofit media education organization, Rise Up. We are supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature progressive voices rarely heard in the media, such as Michael Parenti, Angela Davis, Chris Hedges, Vandana Shiva, Noam Chomsky, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, and Naomi Klein. And we have a series of programs with Alfred McCoy. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs and... There you go. So you know where to go if you want if you want more. Um, I thought that was pretty good analysis. It's from 2017, uh, December 10th. It went out on the radio show that I've got it from. Um, yeah. Pretty good analysis, I thought. That's it for now. I'm, I've got to go shopping, so I'm going to close the room down. And uh, I'll see you again later this evening. I'll be back at 10 p.m. my time, probably ha- probably 9.30 my time on Podbean, uh, which is 4.30 or 5 p.m. Eastern time. So I'll see you then. That's a music show.